Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through the legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Coming from you today from actually rainy Los Angeles. We never, how did we ever get to say that? So yeah, we got some rain this morning, which has been really great. So today I want to welcome a criminal defense attorney who I am always fascinated with talking with and speaking with because over my career, I'm just super fascinated on their process and concepts and ideas and background. Today I want to welcome Julia Jane of Jane Law Group. And she is in the Northern Bay, uh, San Francisco area. Her areas of practice include all types of criminal trials, from criminal to white-collar criminal, which we're going to talk about that in a second. She is in state and federal court. She handles pretty much every aspect of the case from the investigation through trial. She's named Northern California Super Lawyer for the 12th year in a row. Congratulations, Shoya. That's huge. Jane Law Group was also named one of the top 20 boutique law firms in California not an easy feat. And she also teaches the art of trial advocacy to law students at University of California Hastings Law School. So welcome, Julia. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I am always fascinated how one goes from being a district attorney to a criminal defense attorney. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Sure. I can't say it was planned, although had I known, I would have, I would have done the same. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I went to law school to be a prosecutor. I had that goal, I would say from my first year at Hastings where I went to law school, I had an internship, even my first summer at the San Francisco district attorney's office. And then by my second summer, I had a position with the Contra Costa district attorney's office, which led to a more permanent position. They, they, you know, if you do well, they offer you a position post, post-graduation and post-bar. So that was really the single track I was on. It didn't even cross my mind for a minute to go into a public defender's office or be a criminal defense attorney. And maybe it's my upbringing. Maybe I just hadn't even considered it. I just knew I wanted to be a trial attorney and it seemed like, you know, criminal law was the way to go. What made you want to be a trial attorney, just in general? I think I actually wanted to be an actress, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but that was highly discouraged in my family, and uh, and that was just a hobby. So um, you know, at UCLA, where I went to undergrad, and other you know, I did theater things like that. But I think I found a journal I wrote years later from high school that you know I really love acting, but so I guess I better go go to law school. <laughs> you know, I, I've always described trial is theater. Uh, it's interesting to have this conversation because it it is orchestrated, very orchestrated. And I don't think a lot of people really understand how much it is orchestrated, not only. And then you're also, because of live theater, you're kind of on the fly, right? So you have to be orchestrated and on the fly at the same time. So that's that doesn't surprise me. And I know there's a lot of lawyers that take theater type, you know, type storytelling type classes and things like that. But it's 
You know, but but why criminal law? I think um, it just seemed the most real to me and had the most, you know, if I, speaking of storytelling, I think if I thought about what story do I want to tell, it would only be in the context, I think, of something, you know, a mystery perhaps, or telling a story that involves, look at television shows, crime always Mm -hmm. seems to be the most interesting, you know, you're not going to have necessarily a TV show about a breach of contract. So to me, it was, I don't even know that I stopped to consider anything else. It just was the area of law that I thought would be the most interesting. And to this day, I feel that way. That's great. Well, that obviously then is your passion, right? If that's coming through that easily, that's always kind of the ding, 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 that's your passion. But you know, doing a little research on you, you've had 40 plus jury trials under your belt. That That's a big feat, number one. I mean, I, I can attest to that only because that's all I do is go to trial and have for 25, almost 30 years now. But what, what would be, how would you describe the hardest situation you've been in when it comes down to witnesses? Because obviously this podcast is talking about witness prep and the mental well-being of not only the lawyers, but but the witnesses. So with those many jury trials under your belt, can you talk about kind of like the hardest thing you've had to do with witnesses? Well, I think I have to look at it twofold because one, let's say half those trials, if not more, were as a prosecutor. Did a lot of trials in a small number of years, actually. And then from a defense attorney perspective, I'll start with the prosecutor perspective. And, you know, I don't have the greatest memory, but I do remember this. I had a case where on paper, the witness who was a victim, it was all great. Like it sounded, you know, I I actually bring this up with my law students as well. It was seemed like a slam dunk case because you read the witness statement and, you know, what what's there to talk about, you know, from the prosecutor's perspective. I don't remember the specific crime right now, but a victim of some kind of crime. And then uh, there's not a ton of prep time, at least when I was a prosecutor, but I probably had some preparation with the witness and and things started to look a little different in terms of, hmm, not quite as maybe likable as I read on paper. And then when the witness took the stand, I remember he was so unlikable. And there's not something, there's no depositions in criminal cases. Mm-hmm. There are preliminary hearings, but maybe I wasn't the lawyer who did the preliminary hearing. But I thought, oh my gosh, this person is so unlikable. So even though you know, they're the victim of a crime, the empathy factor, just, it was really hard, I think, for me to imagine the jury liking this person. It's almost like, God, you deserve this. You're awful. That was, uh, that was, that that kind of stands out as you just never know. You really have to be prepared for all scenarios because the person might not be likable. Now, you know, on the flip side, especially if I'm putting my client on the stand, I really try to prep the jury for, you may not like this you may not like this person, you may not like things of their past, but the decision is not about like, dislike, but about whether the government has proven a case beyond a reasonable doubt. Let's say these elements, was this crime committed? Not a matter of like, dislike. But uh, but I remember having that concern coming back as a prosecutor that the jury might not care because they didn't like the person. Yeah, boy, I've seen that a lot, actually. <laughs> or I've seen somebody you are working with, and then they get it, walk up the steps and sit in the chair and everything changes because it's such an unknown scenario and visual. And that's another thing I find so interesting is that 
A lot of witnesses don't actually get to go into the courtroom and sit in the chair and look at the room before they ever have to go on that stand. So that unknown just psychologically just can be, you know, kind of freak people out. So one of the things I like to do with my clients, I don't know if you ever considered this or not, have you ever done any kind of like mindful exercises with your clients when you know that they're going to be really either nervous or scared or not likable? I wouldn't, I don't think I've done any mindfulness. I try to give them, I think, suggestions on how to pay attention and what to focus on and how to be in the courtroom, but not necessarily mindfulness. I can't say I've done that. Oh, this is something I'm trying to open the conversation on too, is that how are we looking at prepping witnesses, not only pre, but post. We'll talk about that here just a little bit. So for our audience, I mean, I've obviously been in the business a long time. Can you explain the difference between a criminal case and a white collar criminal case? Yeah, well, there, a criminal case covers everything. That's that's the umbrella. And then there's types of cases. People hear white collar or they hear the opposite isn't really blue collar. It's just general crimes, I would say. White collar is when, for example, it involves often it's financial crimes, mm-hmm. fraud, embezzlement. You know, you hear about insider trading or trade secrets, things like that. So where it's often has to do with money as opposed to someone possessed a firearm, someone sold drugs, someone was in an altercation, domestic violence, sexual assault, things like that would not be considered white collar crimes. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I, I, I think, you know, we talked about, I worked on the Enron litigation with the Department of Justice, obviously one of the most famous white collar crimes. I learned so much about white collar crime really entails and definitions of things like, you know, conspiracy. I mean, how, how do you, how do you work with your witnesses on trying to explain something like conspiracy? Cause I, I'll, I'll give you a little scenario here in a second, but I want to see what your opinion is on that. Well, for witnesses, I think it's less important to get into all the, you know, legal issues because they're, they're there to tell a story. Now, client on the other hand absolutely has to understand what they're charged with the elements. So when you say witness, I'm assuming you mean not my client. And in that case, I think there's, unless they really dig in, there's less of a discussion about, you know, what the government has to prove, legal elements, things like that. Right. And sometimes the witness is even a character witness. So. Yeah. And we'll talk about character witnesses in a second too. I guess the reason I asked the question is because, you know, in the end, there were certain things we had to get out of each witness in order to prove conspiracy. And most people have this, you know, pretty much this idea of conspiracy. Everybody's in a dark room, smoking cigars, having drinks, you know, everybody knows it, which is not the definition of it all. It's just knowing the same thing at the same time. So when you're, when you're prepping your witnesses, your clients themselves, do you prep them to talk about things like that? Or you do not worry about this and only focus on the story? I think it really depends. So one, if you are representing the government and you have the burden of proof and you have to make sure that each element is satisfied, be it conspiracy or something else, I think there's a little more educating so that the witness perhaps understands how they fit into the picture, not just telling their story. So um, I would have explained that because I know even I speak to my law students about that. Why are you calling this witness? What element of the offense are they there to satisfy, right? There's telling the story, but you have to check off, let's say, five boxes. Who's going right. to fit into which box? So I think it is important to give some of that background. For me on the defense side, it dep- 
depends on what kind of witness it is. If it's really nuanced, I may give a little background on the law and why their testimony is important to rebut a particular element. Um, if they're just a character witness, maybe not. But so I guess I would say it just depends if I think it's relevant for them to have that understanding so that they can tell their story and in, in what context, then yes. Okay. That's great. Because you know that the other case that I worked on has been pretty highly controversial, which is going to be coming around the corner again, which is the Scott Peterson case. I also did the Kobe Bryant case. So, you know, the criminal side of life, I've been involved in Rampart, quite a few, those types of things here in Los Angeles uh, and in Northern California. But when I've looked at white collar criminal versus criminal criminal, they're obviously walking in in a suit and tie gives a completely different image of the criminal, right? Versus someone walking in an orange jumpsuit and and handcuffs. How do you work with your criminal, not white collar criminal, but let's say criminal witnesses that don't necessarily have the image that a white collar criminal would have? Yeah. So even if somebody's in custody, you know, we try to get them clothes so that they it's not quite as obvious that they're in custody, even though the jury may know, but we try to have them look as professional as possible. And I always try to tell the witness to just, you know, do their best with dressing up as being as formal as possible in their attire. People are going to judge them based on their, you know, appearance. It's, it's inevitable. And so to try to just look as professional as possible and people are pretty good about following following those instructions. You know, I had this trial once that lasted five months and there were five defendants and they were all in custody. And, you know, it was difficult getting them closed for for five months. And I think they just kind of had to recycle through the same stuff. It was, you know, we had the family drop it off at the jail and things like that. That was challenging. Yeah, I'm sure that would have been. I mean, that's, you know, for that long a time. I mean, I don't, me being in trial for five months is hard, let alone something to that situation. But do you think there's a, when we talk about image, do you think it's harder for jurors when they're looking at someone in a suit from a corporate setting that have done some really bad things versus someone who's sitting in handcuffs that have done some really bad things? Do you, do you think that there's just a image issue there sometimes? Yeah, I think there's, especially if it's allegations of, let's say gang violence or somebody alleged to have committed violent crime. I think the jury can let their own fears and biases of what that means actually affect their decision-making at the end of the day. And I just had this conversation this morning with somebody about, you know, jurors actually being scared because of the perception of, you know, gang members and knowing these people are potentially dangerous. And so I think that can really affect their neutrality that they're supposed to come in with and how they perceive that someone looks. Absolutely. Yeah. I just came from an amazing conference in um, Florida called the Global Exchange and it's on, uh, it was on addiction and mental health and wellness. And I've spoke about Gabor Mate multiple times on this podcast and I'm hoping to get him as a guest here in the beginning of the year. But one of his, one of his big things about incarceration is childhood trauma and how that becomes such a vicious cycle that we end up with young people. And I say, I say, I shouldn't just say young people, but people in general sitting in the courtroom, you know, that have already been degraded by 
something happening in their life when they're young. And then at the same time, they have to come back in again and retestify to things that, you know, that causes shame. Like, how, how do you deal with shame? Yeah, 100%. I've often wondered whether it's more traumatizing to bring in, especially if it's young victims, to have them relive that situation mm-hmm. and have to tell it versus trying to figure out an outcome that won't require their testimony. And I've seen, you know, from the flip side, the prosecutors pushing for, you know, I had a case last year where, you know, the victim even spoke at sentencing and just, and I thought, this is a young person, you know, is this really helpful to them versus, you know, this can be resolved out of their view if they have questions about, you know, how was it resolved? But I thought it was really, really traumatizing to bring something back up. That just wouldn't have been my way of thinking that somebody might heal from this. I don't know yeah. that a young person can feel that, oh, wow, that was so gratifying to know this person's going to prison. Right. You can let right. them know that without, you know, having them retell right. it. Well, and I actually, uh, prior to this interview, I've got Sam Markovich, who came in and talked about talking about, you know, prepping young witnesses in catastrophic personal injury cases. And, you know, I'm also a child of trauma and, you know, it does stick with you. It's, it scars you, but how, and what do you do to help those that are going through this process? If let's say this is your client and the prosecution calls them or something, do you help them get therapy afterwards or what, what do you do to help for aftercare? So a couple of things, the prosecution can't call my clients. So okay. many of my clients that are, for example, I do indigent representation in federal court many of them do have childhood trauma. So them, you know, and so for example, if they're getting sentenced, we dig back into their, into their childhoods. It's really important to bring that up with the court. And I found that those who are simultaneously getting therapy, it's actually a good thing because they may not have had any counseling before. And so, and it's finally something that's being addressed. And so I think when it's coupled with counseling and therapy, then, then it really can actually really turn, turn the corner for some people. But I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah, Yeah, no, that that's, that's, I'm really glad to hear that because I feel like, especially after talking to some people at this conference, one of the things we don't address in the legal system is mental health. And, you know, it's easy for people to say, Oh, you know, it's, it's a mental health issue, but our lawyers really trained to deal with trauma you know, traumatic psychological things that have happened to young people and why they might be where they are today. And that's, I mean, in my personal experience, yes, do we have, there's help there, but are we able to really open this conversation more so on the, and that's why I go to the aftercare. You know, I, I think about some of these people that have gotten off the stand and then they're like, see ya, you know, and, and what happened? Because it is, it's pretty intense, obviously. And, some people are strong enough to handle it. Some people shut down. I've had other guests on the podcast that just have kind of closed down and are not the same person. And how do we get them help? And that's, you know, to become that resource for people here is something. And I'm really grateful you're opening this conversation with me from a from a lawyer's perspective and a defendant, you know, or both a prosecutor and a, and a criminal defense attorney, because I think that it's it's just overlooked so often. And the fear of just walking in. Yeah, for federal cases, there's something called pretrial services. And so 
many of my clients, if they, you know, in the initial interview, if it looks like they have mental health issues, or we can see from their past that they absolutely, you know, are suffering from PTSD or something like that, they will get help. So many of my clients in the federal system are getting counseling as part of the even the pretrial process. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that. That's that's really wonderful. So so can you say that again? What what is what's that pretrial services you said? It's called pre I mean there's pretrial services in state and federal court. And and I okay. you know have experience in both and continue to, but in the federal system it's especially if somebody is, you know, released from custody, they are monitored more closely by pretrial services. Sometimes they're even, you know, on home detention, but as part of that assessment pretrial services may make a recommendation as to mental health counseling, drug counseling, things like that. Or if I perceive after speaking to the client, like I have one right now where I said something is, this person needs far more help than they're getting. What can we do? And they receive that type of care Mm -hmm. at no cost to them if they're indigent. And Mm -hmm. I've seen remarkable, remarkable transformation when people who I just finished a case where the person had been in and out of prison and they're like, this is the first 40 something years old, first time in my life I've had mental health treatment. And I'm actually like, you know, feel like I'm a completely different person. I've been hidden. All this massive childhood trauma had been suppressed. Didn't want to talk about it, but you know, you know, with a good mental health professional that comes out and the person has a completely different outlook on their life and, and everything. Right. Well, that's, that's the whole point here that I'm just so excited we're having this conversation because that is the point is that, you know, a lot of people just overlook the fact that, you know, there's a criminal sitting in front of them, not a human being that's been hurt or traumatized in some level that has taken their life off track. And I'm hoping just to open people's eyes that, you know, you just can't tell the book by its cover. You don't know exactly. It's, you know, I always refer to it kind of like a hurt dog. Uh, a dog gets hurt, therefore they turn mean because they're just protecting themselves. They're protecting their own emotions. They're protecting people around them. And I think just we as as human beings and just you know natural and our natural defense system is goes to this way of protection. And sometimes protection can come out in all different ways. And so when you when you go to prep a witness, how how far ahead of time when you have your own clients do you prep your witnesses? So if a case is actually going to trial, as opposed to it being sort of a hypothetical, but if it's actually going to trial, usually I will speak to them before the trial actually starts, you know, have, um, you know, an interview and, and have an investigator with me and, and talk to them at least, you know, maybe once or twice to figure out if I actually want them as a witness. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in the middle of trial, that's when you may talk to them again. You know, I'm, I like to be efficient and not have, you know, in trial to be very focused. So I'd like to not be doing anything new, learning anything new during trial. So right. it would be as much as possible beforehand. Yeah. Um, and then but, how do, you know, how do, I may add someone or, you know, something and then. Yeah. And then at the last minute. The time is shorter then, you know, then the time right. is shorter. Right. And I guess that's why I was asking, you know, on the front end, when it's short, the mindful exercise, just at least get somebody kind of focused in to a point where um, it's not just so traumatic and so stressful. And so, I mean, I try to describe the setting. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, I think it's pretty well known that, that people with autism, if they, or certain types of autistic brain, if you give them a preview of what's coming, 
right. and they're able to prepare for it, they can right. better deal with the unexpected. And right. so similar with witnesses, I might say describe what the courtroom looks like, where right. they're going to sit, where they're going to walk, how it's, how it's you know, laid out so that it's not mm-hmm. quite as shocking and because they can't come in during the trial if they're a witness and, you know, right. some people well, may that's not. another thing. Yeah, they right. can't come in. Some people are flying. They're not going to come two weeks in nope. advance to take a peek in. Right, So right. I try to, you know, it's still going to be nervous. And I, and I tell them it will be like, it's not so that their, their nerves are expected as well, that it's, right. you know, an intimidating right. setting, however, and then I try to, you know, that we're going to right. talk about this. And, you know, I have a very conversational style, even when I am uh, in trial, mm-hmm. you know, but there's also obviously cross-examination, which can be right. an unpredictable style. But when I'm right. putting on my right. witnesses, they, they know what to expect with me because they've already talked to me and know my style. And the, um, you know, when I, when I was working with uh, the DOJ on the Enron litigation, the lead prosecutor had a lot of conversation on how to, how to handle Ken Lay, right? Because he was, Ken Lay. (laughs) And I've just always, I'd like to get your opinion on this as well, but I've just always believed you never degrade them on the, on the stand. You never put them down, Let let the jury make their decision as to who this person is. But you, there's ways of asking questions without being degrading. Cause I've seen a lot of lawyers just try to degrade people on the stand, which is just, it's been always very hard for me to watch. And I thought John just did, you know, our conversations were so wonderful on just how open to be respectful in a really tough situation. I mean, how do you handle something like that? I mean, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you that if the person's going to look bad on the stand, let them dig their hole, you know, not because of, not because of you, because, you know, as an attorney, yes, I'm not the witness, but I'm still trying to have credibility with the jury. And so I think maintaining composure and then I tell my witnesses the same thing. They may get crazy. Don't fall, fall, you know, into that trap. Just be cool. Be cool as much as possible. Right. They try to rally up. But I think as an attorney, it's more professional to, yeah. as, as you said, to just not degrade anybody and not make it personal. It's not personal. No. And, and I think jurors respect that. I, I really, I've seen multiple times where jurors will respect a really good attorney that does not tear somebody down personally, you know, it's, they have to catch them in this and catch them in that, which I've been deposed and it's not an easy process, but I really do believe jurors, they respect that a lot. And I've seen that. I I do. So, you know, most people don't understand the complexity of the legal system. That's part of it too. Right. So, and so when you have like a witness that there, there's one piece of evidence that they are counting on and that piece of evidence gets thrown out over a legal issue. How do you explain that to a witness that's hanging their hat on something that's just like, but if I had that document, I would be proven innocent, you know, or how do you explain that the legal system isn't really what we all perceive it to be? And a lot of really good pieces of evidence don't make it into the court. Yeah. Um, I mean, kind of, as, as you said, it's a matter of explaining why. And sometimes we don't agree with the decision actually to keep something out or put something in. And there's lots of those kinds of rulings where um, you just yeah. happen to disagree with it and try to figure out a way around it. I think you just have to explain, there's nothing we can do. This is the judge's decision. Mm-hmm. And that it is what it is. We have to work around it. What do you want to do yeah. to work around it? it this, is a fact. This, is a, yeah. this is a fact that exists. 
and there's nothing we can do to change it at this point, yeah. let's say. Well, and that's why I think you know, it was great what you just said. Sometimes it's not emotional. It is just facts, just the facts, ma'am, right? I mean, and then that's the hard part because it is such an emotional charged room or situation or deposition or whatever it might be, yet you're just dealing with facts. And boy, that's that's always a wide, it's just, it's kind of, a, I should say, a fine line that we walk all the time in that situation. So, you know, you say on your website, we understand that when someone is facing criminal charges, it can be the most stressful and daunting experience in one's life. And you talked about therapy. You talked about, you know, kind of an aftercare plan. What do you do to take care of yourself in this kind of environment? Because I know for myself, it's not been an easy road as a career. But what do you personally do to for your mental health? I exercise. That's that's probably my main thing I have done my entire life. So I feel like that definitely keeps me in balance. And I do that on a very, very regular basis. You know, and I have, you know, I, tr- I have hobbies, I travel, I see friends, you know, I have dogs, kids, you know, I mean, there's, there's lots of ways. I also, obviously, there are times when it's really hard to disassociate emotionally, but I'm probably better suited to this type of job perhaps than others who can't let go because I can you know when I said just the facts I really can sometimes get there I think to do this job you kind of have to because you know people will say this is the worst thing you've ever heard and I'm like not really yeah (laughs) well it's it's true it's true and I you know I'm a pretty sensitive person so I know there's a lot of times for me I just had to kind of really walk away and separate myself from it too because there is a you do have to separate yourself at times from the emotional yeah, otherwise side. Otherwise you'll be traumatized hard. by every single phone, every single phone call that I get is somebody in trauma. Right. So um, right. I think that that's probably why I think I'm good at this job is because I'm about, you know, it's not necessarily good for interpersonal relationships, but for this job solutions, because the people, you know, they want to know what's going to happen. What's the solution? What's the game plan? And I'm like, I'm all about that. And then it can also, they feel like more in control of the yeah. situation when they know certain steps are going to take place yeah. in trial. Yeah, I mean, it's in criminal defense. Yeah, I was just going to say in trial, sorry to, to interrupt you, but yeah. that, that can be really emotional. I mean, we've seen, we see it on TV. I mean, you know, we didn't used to see court TV, right? It was, yeah. OJ was really one of the first and the emotionally charged moments where you see people breaking down and crying and, you know, really can, can change up your, your concept of like what trial's all about. So. Yeah. That's when it's so intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's been there with you. So I am. So Julia, I really, I want to thank you for coming forward today and talking with me. I know that you're, you've got quite a bit of press out there as well on just, you know, your ideas of trial and, and the fact that we're talking about the mental health care of witnesses and, and people that have to go through the process because it's not easy. And if there's one quick little thing at the end, I, I always like to ask, is there, is there anything you would give someone advice on that how to prep for the kind of emotionally charged scenario they go through? I think it does help to, for the person to ask questions about even just physically and visibly what it might be like. I think if you have a preview of what you're going into maybe it makes it slightly less traumatic. And so if you are the witness and you're dealing with lawyers, just ask the questions that might bring you comfort. Like, you know, 
where am I going to be sitting? How close is the judge? Where's the jury? You know, who do I have to see in there just to try to visualize what it's like? Not everyone has the benefit of being able to have a victim advocate or have counseling before or after. If that's there, then then absolutely, if that opportunity is there. But if not, then I think just asking questions that might bring a little bit of less surprise could be helpful. Right. Yeah, because it's uh, there's been times I've walked in with clients with schematics so that they can actually show them what the room looks like or photos, you know, just finding ways to make it visual. And then one of my previous guests has an organization called Change Your Algorithm, which is free online. And I would really want to try to work with him on some ways for people that don't have the money to get help that can actually get access. So I just thank you again. I had just been a wonderful conversation that you're in tune with the mental health and wellness of the, you know, legal world. And, you know, as things keep going, uh, hopefully maybe you'll come back. And uh, once again, thank you, Julia Jane. And we are signing off from rainy Los Angeles. Have a great day, everybody, and go spread some love. Thank you so much. Thanks for shedding light on this issue and for having me. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts.